welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Understand PDA, and I've lowered demands in my home. Why do I still hate my life? This is a question that many parents have asked, and I have asked myself, and today we are going to talk about the parental journey and the patterns I've witnessed and noticed as parents move through the grief, shame, self-loathing, frustration that comes with dramatically shifting the paradigm or the lens through which they view their child and moving towards peace. So let's start with two stories from my personal life that I want to share with you. And I think they are illustrative of many of the points at which parents like us reach in this journey and that are actually quite important. Okay, so the first story that I think some of you will resonate with is the feeling that on a deep, profound level, there's something wrong with you as a parent. So I had this feeling from the moment my child was born, my PDA child, eight and a half, almost nine years ago, where I could not do the most basic thing that I believe to be part of like evolution and my biology of like soothing my infant child, then soothing my toddler child, then soothing my child. It was just not something I could do. He would not be soothed. And so I spent most of the first months of his life just completely shattered and not understanding how to stop the screaming, the back arching, the the fact that my son looked like he was in pain. And, you know, I went through all the things from like the colic drops, you know, like my, my letdown was too fast. You know, I was changing my diet. I was doing the windy, one of those things that like helps the gas come out. I was pumping his little legs. It wasn't gas. It was a nervous system disability. But of course, I didn't understand that. So I I walked through my life in Washington, D.C., secretly in my head, probably looking like quite a together human, you know, because I worked in like downtown D.C. in a corporate environment. I had my suit on, my pearls, my heels, looking like I had my SHIT together. But in my head, just tallying like, oh, that woman on the metro with her kids, like she knows how to do it oh, that woman at the restaurant with her kids, she seems to be able to soothe her kids. And I would just like tally in my head the fact that the most basic of human things from my perspective at that time, I was not capable of. So a big part of the parental journey, whether or not you're fully conscious of it, and I think some of you are, is this sensation of like, there's something broken in me that does not, whether you're a father or mother, whether it's a biological child or not, there is this innate sense that you will be able to soothe your child because you're there to protect them. And when you can't, it sort of breaks the identity of who you are as a parent, okay? So part of why I'm so passionate about supporting parents is because I had this secret broken part of my identity that I didn't even 
realize had affected me as profoundly as it did. And there was like a deep sadness and grief and loss there, right? And it was only when I started to understand my child's brain and nervous system, when I started to view things through a different lens, not take things personally and have the tools to proactively and mindfully raise a child with a nervous system disability, even when things continue to be hard, I have profoundly shifted my identity as a mother right? So I don't attach whether or not he's activated to my value or importance as a mother. And this applies to fathers, caregivers, etc. So we're going to come back to that as part of the parental journey. And then my second story that I want to share with you, my rock bottom moment, which is actually a very important moment for parents. Um, It's like touching bottom or the bottom of the trauma cave, or whatever you want to call it, or the giving up that you feel like you're just like, okay, fuck it, I can't do this, right? So there's something important about this rock bottom moment, because it connects to radical acceptance, which is part of this journey that we're going to talk about. Okay, so three years ago, around this time, I was reaching a rock bottom moment, which was you know, I learned about PDA. I was lowering demands. I thought I was doing everything I could. I was still in the doing. And this is a point I find a lot of parents. So it's not about like, do you know about PDA or have you lowered demands or taken action? It's the the point at which you're like, I'm doing everything I possibly can, but it's not working. Okay. So at this point, I hadn't fully lowered demands because I was still limiting screen time and trying to impose all of these controls around my son, even though he was in nervous system burnout and couldn't leave the house. Okay. And it was just, it was so impossible to help him regulate his nervous system because if it wasn't, if I wasn't allowing him to be on a screen, I was having to provide that external nervous system scaffolding 100% of the time. And so I was reaching this point where it's like, I actually don't have more to give. And my son was more violent at that point. He was constantly equalizing against me or his younger sibling, who was a young toddler at the time. He was what felt like being verbally abusive, controlling of me, like whether or not I could eat, my line of vision, whether or not I could sit at the couch near him, but then I couldn't leave the room, etc. You guys know the story. So I was just like broken at this point. And I remember sitting across from my husband. I had, I was like, okay, I'm giving up. He can get on the screen. I'm done with this. Like I'm not doing screen time limits, whatever. He can watch it all day for I care, all for, for I care because I can't do this anymore. And I remember telling my husband who I love dearly, who's my best friend, who I married, because I like spending time with him, (laughs) and he's a good human, but we couldn't spend time together. We couldn't even have conversations because there was just so much equalizing, interrupting us. And I know you guys, some of this will resonate. I sat across from him and I like proposed divorce. And I was like, listen, we don't get to spend any time together anyways. We're both miserable. What if we get divorced and find two other competent humans who are well-rested and capable and maybe don't have their own kids. We'll marry them and then we'll have four adults and maybe we can manage this. And of course he was not cool with (laughs) 
with what I was saying there because it was like deeply hurtful to him. But I was just in such a dark place. I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And I was depressed and I was like not wanting to wake up in the morning and it was terrible. So that was my rock bottom moment. And we're going to return to this as we're talking about the parental stages. Okay, so let's talk first about the parental journey. And this is something that not only I've experienced myself, but I've witnessed hundreds of families through, whether it's in the programs I design or in coaching containers. Okay, so there's really three categories or stages, but I don't want you to think of these as necessarily being like sequential or not being able to happen at the same time or repeat. But there is like the doing phase, which I associate with like seeking answers, finding the solution, the magic bullet, the option C, like there must be something else here. Next comes the decision making of like, okay, I've done all the individual solutions and things are still hard. So now I have to pan out and see the constraints that I'm operating in, whether it's like where I live or my finances or you know, our careers, and then like, look at these constraints that you thought were static, and you can't change and then change them. So that's structural change. So we had individual and then structural, and then you do that. And I'm going to illustrate these with myself and some anonymized coaching clients. And then you realize it's still effing hard because you have a child who has a nervous system disability, right? And there's aspects of your life that are trade-offs and there's a cost benefit and it's not going to look like your peers or other parents with neurotypical children or even other neurodivergencies like ADHD or non-PDA autism, okay? And that's the surrender phase and finding meaning, Okay, and this repeats. It's not like a like you do this and then you're done. It's like peeling back layers of the onion towards finding peace within the constraints and therefore freedom within the constraints that you face. Okay, so let's talk about the doing seeking that I experienced. (laughs) And I'm going to share this with you because I think there's a lot of shame around, you know, therapy and trying to find solutions and these natural tendencies that we have as problem solvers to improve our children's suffering. And this gets back to the soothing part of like, my son seemed like he was in pain most of the time and extremely unhappy. And so it wasn't like, I don't want him to present as autistic and therefore I'm going to put him in therapy. It was like, I need to find a way to soothe the pain that I'm witnessing. So Let me just give you a run through of all the individual solutions that I tried, some of which were helpful, many of which were not. Okay, so starting with the parenting solutions, I did one, two, three magic. I did the timeouts. And when it wasn't working, I like doubled down at the request of the pediatricians, tried positive discipline. Then I moved into the sensory framework and I did all the things of like, okay, the compression shirt is going to help. Okay, the weighted blanket while he's sleeping the fidgets while he's at daycare, going to OT five times a week to try and like fix the sensory stuff. Then I'm like, okay, shaman, craniosacral therapy, neurofeedback, safe and sound protocol, dye-free diet, supplements, primitive reflex exercises, chiropractic, focus focus program, laminated charts, first then statements, token system, sticker charts, etc. Okay, so like I've done it all. 
I haven't done ABA therapy, but I would have if a pediatrician had told me to do. So there's no shame in that. I didn't know any different. I just entered into this of like, my child won't stop screaming. How can I make him stop screaming? Right? It wasn't philosophical. I didn't know anything about neurodiversity affirming anything. I didn't even know what like autism was. I just had this like stereotypical notion of it. So I want to normalize that this is the process that many, many parents go through. Okay. Nobody gets to the point that I'm at or like gets to the point where they're fully informed and fully neurodiversity affirming and fully like positive autistic identity. Like it's not like a you flip the switch and you're there. You have to go through this process right? And I really, I really want to normalize this because frankly, like sometimes I get comments about like, you're, you know, you're grieving a living child and, you know, you're not using the language of neurodiversity affirming advocacy. And it's like, I'm speaking to parents who are stuck like I was. And frankly, like if you're already steeped in everything autism as an advocate, like you probably don't need me to support you because You have gotten there on your own (laughs) and good for you. But like, I'm not going to criticize a parent who struggles with the mindset shifts because that was me, right? So in terms of parents, what I see in this doing seeking stage, and again, like no shame, parent-child interaction therapy, PCIT, often this works in the beginning and then it crashes and burns when you do the second section, which is more behavioral. Applied behavioral therapy. I work with many families who have been through applied behavioral therapy and then their child reaches burnout and then it crashes and burns and we have to take a different paradigm, okay? Cognitive behavioral therapy, speech pathology, OT, all the things, okay? So there's nothing inherently wrong with like OT or speech. It's just that we're coming at it as like a doing, seeking, fixing, okay? And often parents go through all of this And then, yes, play therapy. Yes, we've done play therapy, DIR floor time, saw an expert who we paid $250 an hour in Washington, D.C. to like teach us how to do play therapy, like everything. I toured all the play therapy places in Washington, D.C. I mean, I went all in. Like, I'm an intense person (laughs) when I'm trying to solve a problem. All the things. I made a list. It's not comprehensive. Okay, and the, the nail in the coffin of this seeking solution point of my journey was actually when we received the service dog. And I had thought I had moved past the seeking doing phase in the sense of like, okay, I'm accepting my child's disability. I'm bringing in a service dog to support his nervous system. I'm moving towards acceptance. And then when the service dog came, I realized through my grief, loss, anger, and resentment from the fact that it didn't fix the dysregulation or make the nervous system response go away, that actually I hadn't accepted it, right? I thought I had, but then when the dog came, I was noticing my own nervous system activation from the fact that my son was still having panic attacks and that he was still having a hard time and that the dog didn't replace my safe nervous system. Okay. And how did I know that I hadn't accepted that? It's because of the feelings in my body of like, and the anger and the resentment and the frustration of like, this was supposed to fix this. Okay. So parents often get stuck in this period, in this doing seeking. And it doesn't mean there's no place for it. It's just, we can get stuck constantly searching for the option C. 
of like, there must be something else out there. There must be a magic bullet that I'm not understanding. So for example, with siblings, I remember being a parent and like scouring the internet and researching everything and reading everything and listening to the autistic advocates and just being like, okay, tell me the answer. Like, where is the answer to the sibling problem? And it was like, ultimately, there's not a solution, right? There's not one magic thing you can do. It's like characteristic of the nervous system disability. And so we have to, this is an example of the next stage, see that clearly, accept it and be like, well, I'm one mom, I have two kids, one is externalized PDA and equalizing against the younger one. I actually can't keep them safe if I'm if they're off screens or if I don't have another nervous system. So then I can either choose to put them on screens, watch them equalize each other, or if I can, find another nervous system or split them. Like those are the options. There's not some super secret thing that I know about that you guys don't. It's just parents won't accept that because it's painful and it's like a limitation of your life. And like, nobody wants that limitation. And it doesn't mean you don't accept your kid. It just means you don't want to accept that aspect of your life. Okay. So then we move into the decision-making, which often isn't as clear-eyed as we would like, right? Of like, I'm going to apply this new parenting framework to the siblings and then it's going to fix it. Okay, but then we need to see the decision making of like, I did all the individual solution stuff, maybe I need to think structurally about changes. And for for us, you know, we've moved, we've toggled between the individual solutions and the structural changes. Like I used to work at the Pew Charitable Trust as a research manager of a team in charge of research integrity in Washington, D.C. And I left my job, I didn't leave my career thinking like, I'll never go back to it. I was like, I'm going to take six months, solve the problem, and then go back to some form of academic work. But I was like, we need to move closer to my family. We need to be in a smaller town, closer to nature, where we can afford to not both be working. You know, we made these big structural changes, which now include having an au pair live with us, private school, all of these different things. But it is sometimes necessary for parents. And this often comes much later once they've done the doing of like, okay, actually, like, I think I need to change my career or do part-time work or, you know, move from where I am to be closer to networks or where we can afford to have a larger house or a smaller house or whatever it is. Okay. And, you know, parents don't like to hear it. And it's hard because it's like, yes, sometimes you have constraints and it's financially difficult and all these things. And I'm sorry about that. Like, I can't change that. I can't change the fact that like, these are our choices, that this is the nature of raising a child with a disability. And it's okay to feel resentment and anger and blame. Okay, so you know, there's lots of structural changes that families make. This is not just my journey. It's, you know, I've worked with families who have moved from New York to Florida, Florida to Minnesota, East Coast to Alabama, all all sorts of different structural changes. Sometimes it's for a particular school, you know, like they move to a place to be near a neurodiversity affirming school. They move to a place where there's lower cost of living. They move to a place where they have a network, right? Or, I mean, unfortunately, I'll say, and I don't think this is uncommon in any disability space where like often one parent has to leave their career, which ultimately became my case, right? Now this is my career. It's much different than having a boss and sitting in an office 
nine to five and commuting 45 minutes downtown and being at the behest of of a corporate corporate environment, right? Where it's like you have no autonomy, okay? So then after we make these structural changes, things are still hard. Why? Because you're raising a child with a disability, right? And there are things that you can't fix. And that is really, really difficult. And that's when we move into the surrender. And we're back to the story I told at the beginning, which is the rock bottom of like that rock bottom moment was after I had done all of those individual solutions. It was after I had made the structural changes of leaving my job and moving across the country and all the things. And it was like the moment where I was like, it's still not fixed, right? And then we have surrender. And while this moment feels like giving up, It's actually the moment when accepting the limitations allows you to transcend them. Because instead of focusing on the thing that you cannot solve, you stop focusing on that, you let go and you make space to see with clarity other things in your life that you do have control over and can make changes with. And you make space for other things to flow in. So I will tell you, in all my work and my personal experience over and over and over again, this is the moment when things start to shift, like truly start to change and move towards more peace. And it's really hard to get to that point. And often we think we have gotten to that point and we have to go deeper. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.